everybody. We're here with Dead Cat. This is our newcomer. I'm here with Tom and Katie, and we've got Rick Heitzman, who is a first mark capital. We were talking about the markets, and I was like, oh, can you just come on the podcast and actually just tell everybody this? Because I feel like, uh, yeah, you know, I try to, for the newsletter, you know, accumulate uh, a bunch of views from uh, smart venture capitalists about uh, what, you know, the public markets mean for the private markets because they're not always sort of one-to-one. And Rick is one of my go-tos on sort of uh, translating, I think, you know, talks to smart people in the public markets. Anyway, Rick, uh, thanks thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on. This is awesome. Long-time listener. So uh, excited to be part of it and excited <laughs> to be on, be on the record for a change. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what is your high-level takeaway? Or, I mean, do you think this is, I mean, this is the hardest prediction to make, but I mean, you think this will stick? I mean, I think a lot of people we saw, you know, March 2020, where it seemed like that that was the end of the world. And then everything rebounded. I saw somebody tweeting out that Bill Gurley has correctly predicted five of the last two recessions. So there's certainly <laughs> no shame in, uh, in saying That's that we're great. entering a bad period. But uh What's your what's your honest take? Yeah, I think not on Bill Gurley. I I, uh, I I yeah, I'm not gonna make I'm not gonna make predictions about Gurley, but I will uh, make a little slightly more difficult <laughs> predictions about the market. I think we've entered into a new normal. I I, I don't, I'm not gonna call the bottom uh, because I think that's hard to do, and there's too many things at work here. But I think we've entered into a new period where capital's not free. And it's going to be more and more expensive, even as the 10-year is kind of popping up over 3%. People are saying, oh, you know, this is this is un- unfathomable. You know, we're still at historic levels. So you're going to see dollars kind of trickle out in a macro sense out of risk categories, out of illiquids, and into more liquid, you know, fixed income where they've been before. And that's just going to recalibrate the supply and demand for venture capital and therefore make venture capital more expensive and more competitive for everyone. Could, could we maybe back up for a second here and just maybe set up for listeners, like from a macroeconomic standpoint or, you know, a financial industry standpoint, what were the parameters and environment that kind of led towards the last 10, however many years of venture capital investments? I mean, like what exactly were we working under that allowed for so much venture capital to enter the industry at what you say is, you know, cheap money? So, you know, compared to compared to historic levels, when I was, you know, in the 90s, when I was in college, they, um, folks said, hey, you had to have 10% in cash, 60% in bonds, and 30% in equities, all equities, and a small portion of that could be illiquid equities. Um, and what happened was um, both with stimulus kind of in the early 2000s, post that recession in September 11th, and then increasing stimulus, including quantitative easing, post the financial crisis, what you were seeing is unprecedented new lows in the in the in the fixed income market, in the high yield market, and what you could get for your risk free rate. So your cost of capital um, decreased tremendously. And so if you were an institutional money manager, if you were a pension fund, a foundation, someone like that, you said, well. If I'm not getting any yield in fixed income, what could I go and put money in to get yield? And as as more more of that money kind of trickled out of fixed income and trickled into equities, you know, some portion of that trickled into venture capital. And what we saw was interest rates continued to fall. And that was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, it culminated 
you know, in the early days of the pandemic, I think uh, April or, or, or May of 2020, where, you know, interest rates were effectively zero here and, and negative in large parts of the world, as correctly, the Fed said, hey, we need to stimulate this and we need to figure out what's going to happen on the other side of this pandemic. We want to make sure the economy doesn't crumble as well as everything else going on. So money effectively became free or, or even, um, you know, negative yielding. And therefore, people, you know, wanted to put money in whatever was happening. And there was no discount for companies that weren't making a profit, but making a profit later. And therefore, tremendous dollars transferred into, you know, risky but illiquid venture capital uh, and the startup ecosystem on the whole. Dollars from where, by the way? I mean, where did you see kind of a new class of investors during that period start to enter enter the, you know, investment or LP or, or whatever stage market? You're seeing it from everywhere. So, you know, there were, there were firms that um, were allocating more dollars into venture capital or private equity as a liquid, you know, people call it alternatives, illiquids, VCPE was showing better returns, right? Because you're seeing that same supply demand, demand dynamic happening among the LP class and you're seeing worse returns among fixed income. So with that, you know, gradual transition, and that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? The more money you put into a small asset class, the more that asset class is going to grow and the more it'll create yields. Therefore, as interest rates are falling on the fixed income side and returns are growing on the venture capital private equity side, it increases that that transition or increases the velocity of that transition. Right. To dumb this down even more, I mean, interest rates were low. People loved risky companies. Where What produces the best risky, high-growth companies? Venture capital. People flooded in to the private markets. And then the riskiest companies were raising a lot of money. So then the good companies, uh, you know, sort of software businesses with high margins, were trading at extreme multiples earlier and earlier because relative to sort of cash-burning businesses, there was so much appetite to get in them that they drove... Uh, valuations well put. way up. Well put, yeah. But, but if, yeah, if, <laughs> if money has, if there's no risk associated with capital and no yield required, people are just going to dump more and more capital in. And that could be startups or that could be crypto or that could be NFTs. And that's kind of how we saw during, you know, the spring and summer of 2020, really up through most of last year, these companies raising these bonkers around, especially like fintech companies at, at, at insanely high multiples. I mean, I was covering media during the time. So I was seeing this incredible rebound from, you know, initially everyone fearing that there was going to be no money in advertising to an abundance of advertising and, and companies kind of artificially looking like they were doing really great. I mean, it was this kind of 18 month euphoria of what you're, what we're talking about here, right? Well, there's flo- flooding in the system. You know, the Fed was flooding the system with money, and therefore, there were more you know consumer companies being funded who wanted to spend that money on advertising. Traditional companies were more than happy to spend money on advertising because their threshold to return at their investment on advertising was much lower. So right. every you know every part of the economy, dollars were slashing around, and therefore, you know everything was good. Okay, let's. And, and just for context for people, the NASDAQ composite is down 24% right now, year to date. Yep. And then as of today, it's down like 2%. So that, I mean, and yesterday, uh, I'm talking about Thursday, uh, it was down and that terrified everybody. It was down about 5%. So that's 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 what's got us scared. And, and just to highlight one thing, I mean, it is amazing, you know, if you're not in the finance world, uh, it it wasn't the pandemic that terrified the stock market. It was 
the Fed moving to raise interest rates. So it, that is why this conversation roots around interest rates so much that that contrast pandemic. Nope. Markets are fine. Interest rates that drives company prices and everything. And that's, that's why we're sort of reacting at this moment. I mean, let's split it into like with, with our private market focus here and what this means for the private market, sort of the bull case and sort of the bear case for, you know, in a good situation and a bad situation. Like to me in this, in this, okay, things are going to be okay. The okay market is there's still a ton of venture capital. There aren't sort of systematic risks, you know, there, I don't know. What's, what's the bull case. Yeah, for you, so the, the bull case is, and, and, I, and I'm an optimist, right? So I, I'm always pulling for the bull case. I'm always optimistic about what's going to happen. So, you know, and I, I want this to happen in the worst way. What you're seeing is that, you know, the digitization of every single industry, we're probably still in the early innings. You know, you're, you're seeing disruption happen in every industry and whether it's a shift to streaming and media or, or whether it's a, a shift to the Internet of Things in railroad cars. So you're seeing a gradual disruption of traditional business practices. And disruption in the most sincere way. I mean, people use Spotify. Exactly. You're using Netflix. Your parents use cable and you're like, what's wrong with you? Like there, there is a, most people are still using cable TV. There is still plenty of room for things to shift over to the disruption that most millennials already accept as, as meaningful. Exactly. And people are finding jobs on their, on their phone and they're, and they're ordering food on their phone and all these things, which are not only disruptive, but are, are more efficient. Right, that you're, you're, there's less there's less aspects of of the activity chain, and you know traditional toll takers who are resellers are losing value. Right, so you used to have to pay your cable company, who would then turn around and pay ESPN for you to access ESPN. Now you can just go on your phone and subscribe. So the, a lot of this uh, these elements of digitization are creating a much more efficient economy. And so all that's good. There's high return on investment. And you're, we still, we think we're in the early innings of that. And it's coming waves. And I think the availability of free money led to a lot of entrepreneurship. It's becoming democratized. It's becoming global. And we're seeing great ideas come from everywhere. So from a fundamental, most you know, macro basis, you know, digitization and the push for entrepreneurship is making everything work better than it did before. And that's creating better companies than before. And those companies are also able to use completely new go-to-market channels and reach more people more quickly than ever before. So if we started a company and we knew we were looking for Chicago-based pizza makers, we could go on Facebook or Google and advertise immediately to all those Chicago-based pizza makers overnight. And, you know, therefore, business has become better and more efficient. So that that's a great tailwind. So these companies are getting started. You know, there's also a much more evolved ecosystem in the funding of these companies. So there's seed investors, incubators, seed investors, Series A, growth, all those things. Um, and all each element of that, call it financial activity chain, has been well-funded over the last period of time. You know, they're even the revolution rise of the rest fund is able to deal with large parts of the countries that were uh, venture capital deserts. Um, uh, individual industry sectors have individual venture capital yeah, firm, funds. Firms are well-capitalized. And, and, and sure, maybe, maybe, you know, we talk, hear about like D1s of the world, like tigers, like firms can either redirect to the private market. I mean, sorry, from the private markets mm-hmm. to the public markets. That's where it's most dangerous, right? Right. That period. Yeah, so, right and before. we're still talking right. about the bull right. case and they still have tons right. of money. You know, if you're Henry or, or if you're, if it's you're, hard not to talk about the, the bear case. Yeah, but, they, uh, they have, so, so we're still saying, Hey, these stage, guys, yeah. these guys have a ton of money and, you know, tigers doing more at the series A and series B level. So, 
you know, you're seeing more dollars and more parts of the ecosystem than you've ever seen before. Seed and A are still, I would call them frothier still, right? I mean, would you say that? I, I think we've, we've just begun to see um, valuation expectations reset. So usually it f- flows back through the system, right? Because the feedback loop is longer the further you are. If you're, you know, if you're trading a liquid stock, you get feedback every second of whether that was a good trade. If you're doing a seed, it takes you years to get feedback. And therefore, this adjustment takes longer to get feedback into your cycle and decision making. So we're seeing the reset on pricing happen at the C, at the Series A now, and it'll probably happen in the seed and Series A over the next quarter. But you know, overall, the ecosystem from a very macro perspective is great. Companies are creating value. There, you know, these companies are also more profitable sooner than ever before as there's a bunch of tools to become capital efficient. And it's a well-funded activity chain to get companies from idea to the public markets in a relatively efficient way. That's the bull case. Um, so going to the bear case, you know, there's more companies than ever before, and there's going to be a lot less capital. So there, you know, as Eric said, in the in the growth stage and the later stage companies, there's probably you know eighty to ninety percent down from last year. Certain players have left the market completely that were top ten players in the private markets last year. Other players are down significantly. This is the third longest time without a tech IPO this hmm, century. I didn't know that. After, That's after, interesting. After the early aughts and after the global financial crisis. And the big IPOs, Coinbase, Robinhood of 2021 are looking terrible. So, yeah. It, they're looking to, and there's, yeah, there's a hangover. So the people who bought the IPOs last year, which also, because of their crossover funds, tended to invest uh, heavily in the privates last year, are saying, Wow, the things I took out last year, I wasn't as smart as, as I thought. These things are down 70% on average. And the things I invested in last year, thinking they were going public this year, I'm neither getting liquidity nor a valuation pop. I'm going to take a second and, and figure out where this market really is. So I'm just going to sit, I'm, I'm going to sit and wait because it doesn't feel like I'm missing out on anything. As you know, I as everybody else is sitting out of the market, I can invest in anything I want, including these these IPOs of last year that are on sale. So there, so the, the late stage market is completely on pause, um, with very few deals getting done. So just to make that specific, if I'm a big investor and I'm looking at Snowflake and Databricks, Snowflake is liquid. Yep. I can exit it. It's been marked down. Databricks is you know presumably still valued at whatever it was in August you know, of last year. And so are you really going to do a big growth around? Now, obviously, fundamentals, you know, how the company is actually performing matters. Um, so there will be cases where people still invest in the private company, but you have to overcome sort of a huge, huge you know, the, this, the fact that you've really been marked down without that ever getting... Yeah, and, and you've seen a flip. I mean, for the first time in my career, you know, going back 20, 25 years, last year, there was a private company premium meaning that people were willing to pay a premium multiple to get into private companies, where historically there was always a private company discount for, as you said, Eric, liquidity, right? So, you know, you're able to, if you buy Snowflake today and then decide tomorrow you don't want to be in data infrastructure software companies, you could sell it. If you bought Databricks, if you let around at Databricks today, you know, you're in that for a couple of years until they go public. And even after they go public, because there's a lockup and everything else, and with so much uncertainty, everything from a shooting war to a resurgent pandemic to political crosswinds, you know, do you really want to say I'm going to lock up my capital for a year or two? 
And most people are saying no um, for for all those reasons. To me, the big question on the bear case, and this is sort of moving into Tom's world, is whether there will be a company that really like blows up or like particularly, even if they don't blow up, if there will be our expectations for what a company like Uber or Instacart, you know, we saw Lyft drop by a third after earnings. Mm -hmm. Um, This so-called O-to-O, online to offline market, we've never, the market... They, those companies have existed fully in this sort of bullish period, and we really have no understanding of what are the true pricing of this industry is. And, and seemingly overnight, I think that was what was kind of incredible about it is you know watching. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was the fourth quarter of last year. Right. Overnight, everything changed, and you know you saw it as part of the budgeting process last year. And you know entrepreneurs were whipsawed. You, you know you said thirty days ago. The most three, the three most important things were growth, growth, and growth. Now you're saying the three most important things are profitability, unit economics, and long-term sustainable business model. And if, if I'm trying to create a budget, oftentimes those are going in different directions. And therefore, I might need a new team, a new thought process, everything. And you know, it's, it's easy for an investor like me to sit there and just cross things off on a piece of paper and, and rewrite my top three goals. But to operationally change that is is awful. Right. I mean, it's almost like that cartoonish depiction of Wall Street traders where like in one sense you see them all saying like, bye, bye, bye. And they're running around with the papers and then like, you know, the color changes on the monitor and they're like, sell, sell, sell. And they don't really understand, you know, fully what happened to them. I mean, it was was fascinating. I covered the earnings uh, for Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash in the last week. And it was very interesting seeing the media, the way that the media tried to explain what had happened. Um, because, you know, they would say, oh, Lyft, dire earnings report, you know, b- bombshell embarrassment as it, and it was just like, no, it was actually pretty good. They like beat their numbers. You know, the, the thing that really killed them was the fact that they're going to be investing more uh, in, in, in driver growth, which like seemed to be great news last year when they were doing it. And then hilariously, Uber decides to move up their earnings pre-market to kind of circumvent what they assume, you know, was a very specific lift disease because they're like, well, they're, they're bad, but we have great earnings. And I think that's like the first time since the financial crisis. Right. Which right. I saw happened, somebody right? invoke Lehman Brothers, right? The, did the banks yes, move up? Yes, that was exactly it. During the, after Lehman, Bryce's, Lehman Brothers collapsed, every bank had to rush to the street to tell them, right. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> right, yeah. I had you know, people from Uber, I can include this, people from Uber were like kind of spinning to me being like, oh, Lyft really missed the memo on how to run a profitable company. Yes. Uh, and, you know, that clearly was like, and then they decided to move up their earnings. Uber does their things, drops seven or eight percent, actually drops 10 percent immediately uh, upon market open. And then DoorDash, which actually has a very strong quarter. I, I thought a lot of their fundamentals looked great. They have you know good growth. They have better EBITDA uh, than, than Uber Eats even. They're down like 16% right now. And it's, I, I, th- I mean, it must just be maddening inside these companies uh, as they kind of optimize for a very specific style of projection and, and uh, signaling to the street to suddenly be told everything what you've done, everything that you've done is wrong. Yes. And to operationalize that probably takes a year of rethinking about that. And they're hitting the expectations they set out, but someone moved the goalpost. Well, when you say yeah. that somebody moved the goalpost, like how much of a recognition is there that the goalpost is being moved outside of the Valley and outside of the industry by things like the Federal Reserve? And how much recognition is there that the reason those metrics could have been important and that people could have focused on those things is because the market was willing to both take the risk and pay for them. And when I say the market, I mean the broader market as influenced by fixed income, 
commercial real estate. I mean, so when, when we keep saying somebody move the mm-hmm. goalposts, it's actually not like an unknown somebody. Yeah, well, it's, it's probably public market investors, right? And I think that's the, that's the key linchpin that they said, you know, hey, I'm unwilling in a rising rate environment, I'm unwilling to fund losses in, in the long term. So I, I need to see some definitive point where you're going to be profitable. And I need to see what this business looks like at a run rate. And uh, companies who didn't respond to that got crushed. And then, you know, then private crossover investors or growth investors said, hey, look, they're crushing people who, who aren't pro- focused on profitability. We're never going to be able to get our company public unless we're profitable. Then they go back to the board and say, hey, rest of the board, did you see these companies got crushed that focused on growth? And the rest of the board says, yes, you know, profits. And meanwhile, the CEO <laughs> yes. said, that's the same guy who said growth, What growth, do you want growth, from me? You know, 60 days ago. Yes. <laughs> but I just mean from the outside, it looked, compl- I mean, like I said, I'm not in, I don't mm-hmm. cover the industry, but just from outside of the industry, it actually looked pretty logical to me. I mean, when you look at all these other points, Eric had this great newsletter looking at all the times when people said the bear market is going to happen. And the one thing that wasn't really happening in those other supposed inflection points is the rate environment mm-hmm. was not changing. And so I think it was basically almost in tandem with this stock slaughter you saw the Federal Reserve come out and say, not just that they were raising rates, but they were immediately starting to not raise rates, but to take some of the other measures off the table that weren't rate raises that had artificially right. had the impact of keeping it It speaks low. to the era that I've uh, learned business in that I don't even know what the opposite of quantitative easing is called. It's <laughs> tightening. It's like, oh, I only yes, know quantitative easing. Tightening. Like, what's the opposite so, of it? <laughs> so many things were, so many things, because so many things were implemented post-financial crisis and then post-pandemic and post-post-post, right. whatever you want. It wasn't just rate. <laughs> It's going up and down, right? It was buying back your own paper. It was, you know, it was just all these sorts of market manipulations. It's like people like Eric going to Rick being like, explain to me the time of tightening. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've never Wait, seen this. Well, the other thing is no one's ever that? seen this before, right? No yeah, one, we, we haven't seen this since two, since when? 2010? Well, no, quantitative tightening, I don't think we've ever seen, right? Because I think that there was quantitative easing. Oh, I thought you were yes. It was created during, quantitative easing was created during the financial crisis absolutely to help the banks and they said what well, I main the problem is like a lot of things some's good more is better oh that thing we used in the financial crisis we could use that again in the pandemic and if we use some of that before let's just lather that on everywhere and absolutely. now they're like at some point we have to reverse that and they still really hadn't reversed what they did in the financial crisis and now they have to reverse all that but even a 50 basis point um change in in the fed rate hadn't happened in 20 years. In Absolutely. 2000. So they're, they're doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. And so when people were like, well, rates haven't moved yet. So why is this downturn happening? It's like, well, it wasn't just the rates. Again, to your point, all the things created around quantitative easing, those things were being quietly dismantled. And, and so expectations you, drive so much of it also. Absolutely. So you, you have the effect before everything's been implemented. So, so it looked very perfectly right. logical to me from the outside. I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, happen. we don't know the floor of this, but... I mean, obviously, you know, Fed policy keeps a lot of people employed. They focus on unemployment. We got to enjoy sort of this booming economy. And I mean, there is some culpability for investors where it's, you know, you know, it's not like no one, everyone in the world thinks that Uber is a money losing business. You know, we've gone, there are lots of, you know, it wasn't a secret Um, that both these companies lost a lot of money and that there would be come a pivot point where people sort of reoriented their thinking and sort of 
short-termism and, you know, hedge funds get paid once a year. There are lots of reasons and incentives uh, that drive people to chase, you know, growth that will come to an end. Well, I mean, it's the old thing that, you know, turkeys go further and further out on the risk curve before they get slaughtered. So people knew that eventually we're going to have to build a profitable company or a self-sustaining financial company. And then you kept getting rewarded for not. I like the turkeys. Um, I also like swimming without shorts. I think we should put together a full list of all of the analogies made for people who take too much including risk. Sketches. Like, <laughs> including little sketches. Wait, Katie, what, what happens What happens when you swim without shorts? I'm, I'm worried here. Oh, yeah, that was that was the Warren Buffett. Um, Warren Buffett's thing oh, was right. when, when the tide right. goes out, you can <laughs> yes. see who's swimming naked. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes. 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 We we can right. the free clash the, the, the free cash flow yes. generous uh, analogy. <laughs> yeah. yes. I mean, I, I think we we all clearly agree. Interest rates driving the situation. I mean, in my piece, um, which I'll include a link to in the, the post with this. I mean, I had two charts um, from Redpoint where they showed in a private investment dollars after two thousand eight and private investment after the dot com crash. And the point was basically if this is oh eight. You know, there was resilience and dot-com, you know, investment uh, really, really dropped. Katie, you were sort of making the point that a key key question there is the interest rate environment. Yes, in the, like a nerd, two. I was like, Eric, I really wish they'd overlay <laughs> the 10-year the bond, <laughs> bond yield. Yes, because that, that was the right thing to do. <laughs> I don't know the answer because then I did not have time. I actually, I made a note to myself, look this up before the podcast. <laughs> but, but then instead I got on the phone with all these people for for the other things I do. <laughs> but, but in May 2000, Fed raised rates 50 basis points, the last time before before this week. And so not only were, was the tech market crashing, but people had a, a safe uh, had another pathway of somewhere to go. Differently than, you know, maybe the pandemic where they they drop rates tremendously and folks were like, "Well, I'm not going to go there. They're not going to give me any yield. I might as well stay here and see what happens in growth." Right. Mm-hmm. And obviously the complicating thing for tech in the pandemic is also everyone moves to Zoom, sort of the technology industry sees companies see revenue skip ahead because people yep. are adopting stuff faster. Now we're coming out of the pandemic and we're seeing sort of the opposite where tech people wanted to believe things would be stickier than they are. And in some cases, you know, we're seeing companies like Hopin where there are questions about whether sort of the tremendous growth is really sustainable. So there, 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 are, not, there are other, obviously... Anytime you try and tell a big story about the overall economy, there are lots of pieces at play at play at once. Could I ask a somewhat hypothetical question? Sure. Because you you mentioned 2000 and the basis point mm-hmm. move then, and we saw a couple of things, obviously a market crash and a big fraud, right? Enron, WorldCom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 2007, the Fed's like, okay, this housing market's very overheated. We have rates move. We have a big crisis. The momentum stocks were weirdly banks at the time, but we see them get crushed. Big fraud, Bernie Madoff. Mm -hmm. Here we're in 2022. Rates are moving up. Momentum stocks are down. What's going to be the big fraud? Seems like a Tom question to me. Who's the riskiest person? (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'm covering the riskier companies here. I don't know. I mean- uh, like who's our next Enron or Bernie Madoff? <laughs> like that's the good stuff. I mean, we saw the Archegos thing, right? Yes. I mean, I mean, they're all, 
only like I don't know if that case is a slam dunk, but it was definitely the canary in the coal mine. I do think that Eric has a point there. That I think that a lot of people who are using margin loans are, might be the, might be they might not be committing fraud. They might not be a Madoff. They might not be an Enron, but they might be using a lot more leverage than they let on. And that could be a hedge fund. It could be a private equity fund. It could be a growth fund. It could be an individual. That I think you're going to see things blow up because interest rates are going up and their collateral base is going down. And there's going to be folks who could not have you know, modeled out that their collateral base is down 70%. And there's going to be margin calls. And I think that's going to be the, the overuse of leverage when people thought money was free and therefore they could juice their returns is going to, I would say, is, is an obvious um, or thing, things I've heard, you know, could be one of the one of these great disasters. I mean, and, and there's always the cynical argument that uh, things become crimes when they go really poorly. and The government is unhappy when sophisticated people don't uh, make things work. But I mean, yeah, without talking about crime at all, I mean, you can just see sort of the interconnectedness. You know, I mean, we had SoftBank go huge. SoftBank's a big investor in... Uber, Didi, though, you know, Uber's a stakeholder in Didi. You know, there's a lot of internet connectedness in the big risky bets. Then we see Tiger Global take over, invest deeply in internet. So there are just these players who are willing to deploy a ton of money that were taking correlated risk. <laughs> so if the correlations go the other way, they're going to have sort of a big negative impact. That doesn't mean they're doing anything. I mean, that to me, I mean, maybe that will change what's amazing about this time is it feels like it was so, it's so obvious. There was no secret. There was no like hidden thing like WeWork, which I mean, WeWork was the case of sort of the market can sustain it. The the sort of collapse isn't bringing the system down. But to some degree, you know, we 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 yeah, we we saw it and people were just willing to take a risk because what else, what else were they going to do? I don't know. Uh, I mean, in correlated concentration risk was that's that was kind of how they got caught at. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce the name, but Ar- Ar- Archenos or Arcanos, and it was they 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 were in ten media companies that they were highly you know highly correlated, and they used additional leverage and crowded people out in what might be an illegal way. But you know, if you're SoftBank and you're using leverage and you're have highly concentrated, highly correlated positions, if this thing unwinds. You know, what happens? It's interesting to me also the foreclosure of the IPO and the effect that that's going to have on a lot of these companies too, right? Because, you know, we saw the whole SPAC craze from a couple of years ago being the quick way for a lot of these companies to go public. And honestly, it probably good that the SPAC window is entirely closed now uh, during this period because things could have been truly disastrous uh, if you had had a lot of companies sort of immediately going public uh, and, uh, you know, getting crushed by the new expectations of what a company is. But I'm also interested in a lot of these venture debt rounds that companies have been doing, these sort of like bridge to IPO rounds. Like we saw GoPuff do one uh, earlier this year. Uh, Vice has this kind of onerous, this is a slightly different situation, but this very onerous relationship with TPG where they, you know, gave them what's akin to like some sort of a convertible debt round. You know, Vice is in a really tough spot right now. Um, I'm, you know, I think uh, the companies that sort of relied on that with the expectation that like, well, it's not going to be a big deal because we can go public and, you know, these shares will convert. They don't. It could get ugly very quickly, don't you think? And even historically, you know, Square, which is now Block, had, you know, that is one of its reasons to go public. They, they had structured debt that, you know, picked at a, at a high interest rates the longer they waited to go public. And I think you're right that people thought the window to go public after being open for so long would always be open. 
and now it's closed. You know, the other thing you're not hitting on, um, but is like a, a tie to this is, you know, the, um, the things that make investors invest and put more capital out is feeling good and driving returns, right? So if you have a company go public, you think you're smart because you know you invested early and therefore you're, you want to invest more and the, the opposite is true. So the lack of liquidity, either to send back to your limited partners or the ability to think that you're really good at this and therefore you should do it a lot more, that, that decreases investor confidence and decreases LP confidence and that slows down the whole machine. I, right. I keep thinking, Katie, back to your question on like what the next implosion is going to be and using the analogies to Madoff or, or Enron and WorldCom. I, I, what connects all of those to me was the fact that everyone who covered the space knew that these companies were not sustainable, mm-hmm. right? Yes. It was sort of like an open secret. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe made off slightly differently, although I feel Madoff's like- Madoff's a little different, but I think Bear Stearns was probably a better, because like taking yeah. criminal, like, you know, yes. <laughs> but like people knew that Bear was over leveraged. They knew that Lehman's real estate portfolio was over leveraged. You know, so there was a sense that something was wrong, yeah. but saying that something's wrong when everything's going up, as we know as reporters, is the most thankless task ever because nobody believes you and they make fun of you. <laughs> Right. So, so like my guess is that it's going to be a company or a group of companies that we all sort of knew were not sustainable, that we all could tell as they were raising money in more and more leveraged ways was a possible, you know, uh, like it had a clock ticking next to them. But because things get getting pushed further and further out during quantitative easing and this easy access to capital, no one really was concerned about it. But when it dies, when it implodes, when it becomes, you know, the next whatever world come, it will have been so obvious to all of us. Yeah. Uh, and we will be embarrassed that that was not the stories that we've been writing for the last I, I couple mean, of years. I mean, the theme of a lot of my coverage and what I was trying to show in the piece yesterday is that these companies got so big, people made so much money, they exited, like they, they got away. It's just like the money has been made. And I, I'm just, what's my point? Like, I guess in the case where Uber, like say Uber is the test case, or, you know, I, I think it's Uber could be, you know, like a $5 billion company instead of a $50 billion company today. That doesn't mean it goes bankrupt or anything. But like, if that if that would be the case, I still, I think there will all be, these people will be like, I knew it. Uber was like, uh, like a, a croc the whole time. But it's like, but, but you didn't know that people would make a whole fortune. I mean, how long do companies stay humongous, valuable companies? Do you know? Do you understand the point I'm making? Like, well, I mean, I guess in in bull in bull markets, the the rule of thumb was always in in the the last eighteen months of a, of a ten year bull market, most of the money is made. So that's right. why people are always afraid to get off the get off the treadmill. Right. You you guys were an investor in Postmates, right? We were. So you you are you happy right now? Uh, Three billion sale. It's an interesting. I mean, somebody was making the point on a totally different company, Slack. The Slack sale is looking great now. There are these sales where it's like oh, I mean, a, lot, a lot of things last year, software companies were selling at 50, 50 times revenue. You feel really good about that. I mean, we in Postmates, we sold to Uber, so we got Uber stock. So we were able to ride that up and then pick our exit point. So that, that was quite nice. But I, yeah, I would say that you're right. The companies where you, you, know, you talk to people outside of our echo chamber and they're like, I don't understand how I could get a bar of soap delivered to me cheaper than going to Walgreens or CVS by a guy who's <laughs> going to drive here in 15 minutes. 
And then you explain what you do for a living, and they're like, "Ah, oh, okay." <laughs> uh. But like, you know, oh, I, I think magical <laughs> thinking. <laughs> yes. Well, there's a venture capitalist who's paying for the other two dollars. <laughs> but I think the the yeah, I would say these quick quick delivery guys who I'm in New York and that are all all over the streets of New York, the jokers, the getters, the you know all those things are going to be like, oh, you know, we saw Cosmo, we saw it didn't work. And then we just did the same thing with another right. 10, $10 billion. Yeah. I mean, that's been sort of like the core of every story that the mainstream pubs write about them. It's like, yes, all of these companies were embarrassments during the early dot-com era, but this time it's different. Yes. Why? We saw we saw this movie, hmm. Everybody Died at the End. And now, right. we're gonna, we're gonna, now we're wondering why in the sequel well, no. we think there's going to be a happy ending. Th- this time, venture capital firms have more access to liquidity for longer periods of time than they had before. So that's right. very helpful. No, and to right. the point, like, you know, there's people who made money at WeWork. Uh, they, you know, rode that up and said, well, you know, Adam and, and and people made money there and therefore it's fine. Or, you know, people made money in, uh, in some of the ride sharing things. And, and then we're going to see how much, you know, how much, if you have to pay somebody to go get that bar of soap for you, someone has to pay for that or, you know, it's not going to work. Right. And I guess it gets down to the intrinsic value of the service, right? If this truly is something that a broad number of people want to do at an elevated price point, then it's a good thing. Then I think there actually is some some larger value to it. If it's just purely about it being cheap and the second the price goes up, you are basically not interested in it, then it wasn't a great service to begin with. It was just free money, essentially, or a free service. I think that's kind of the perfect storm here too, right? Seeing at a moment where the price for the bar of soap has to hit $14 or whatever, and the consumer's willingness to pay $14 go down at literally the same moment when consumers might have been happy to do it five years ago. Like that, Mm -hmm. seeing that those two trends come together, I find really fascinating. The the funny thing we haven't talked about is crypto, (laughs) which in venture world has been sort of the the thing that's still doing well. You know, crypto funds have been raising. There's been a lot of money made. Bitcoin is down. Um, I think it's 20 plus percent so far this year. But, uh, But yeah, it's funny that, I don't know, right now people don't know whether... You, you know, there's a totally different world where we say crypto. Well, that, that, that the, tends to be the last the last place to go, right? Because the first the tends to be the first ones, first people you you tend to evacuate the tactical things, right? So you're able to say, you know, software is a service. We know how this stacks up. We know how revenue grows, and re- therefore I could pencil out a way to this type of exit in that period of time. And if everybody re-rates, we know what someone's paying for it. The things that are completely asymmetric, like crypto where you're not, you can't pencil out what you think that crypto is going to be worth or what NFT is going to be worth. People are still willing to take asymmetric risks on because no one could pencil out that they're wrong. So you're seeing, you know, people with risk capital shift to asymmetric risks or things that could still be big because there's a lot of confidence in a space. Do you have a piece of advice or like, I guess if maybe, uh, you know, if I'm a sort of tech worker looking... For my next job, I don't know what what advice would you give them right yeah, now? Yeah, I was going to say the audience could be tech CEO, tech worker, uh, young VC, probably all different advice. So, you know, the advice we're giving around boardrooms now, you know, we, we had thought that, you know, 2020 and then obviously 2021 
was great times to raise money. It wasn't you know? And I've been investing since the mid nineties. If you know, if it if it wasn't nineteen ninety nine, it was pretty close as as you know, an A if not A plus time to raise capital. So we advise people to you know to people take raise the, two three rounds. Some of them, yeah, yeah, yeah take the In money. I mean, yeah. it's 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 very very cheap insurance. So you take that money and then, you know, we talk about having a fortress balance sheet that could withstand a lot of external turmoil. If you have a fortress balance sheet and having been in- <laughs> Not necessarily having fortress on your balance sheet. No. <laughs> that would be terrifying. Sometimes the exact opposite. Yes. You don't want that. You do not uh-huh. recommend that. The, uh, so you have a fortress balance sheet, you can withstand market turmoil and you eliminate financing risk. And, you know, having been an entrepreneur in the early aughts where there was no financing, elimination of financing risk is something that um, I think about a lot. Uh, and then being able to say, all right, now you have a fortress balance sheet. How could you, you know, make sure your team is great? And, I, and you increasingly you're hearing very quietly that folks are saying, especially as return to office is showing up, that are the, is my team great? If my team is not great, how do I turn over the folks who aren't great? And then I, how do I go out to people in the market and say, hey, I have a fortress bounty. I have $400 million in cash. I have $400 million of revenue. I don't care if I can't get public next year. I'm going to get public and I'm going to be one of the great companies that survived this. You should be on my team with the all-stars. And they're starting to do selective kind of rifle shot hires of all-stars from, uh, from companies where might have been hard to take them out of because that all-star might have had a significant right. amount of company. To, to read between the lines a little bit. A lot of poaching. A lot of poaching. Well, well there, you know, on Twitter, nobody's going to say like layoffs are good. And, you know, I don't want to be the mm-hmm. person to say that. But there is a degree to which when everything's going great, your company wants to be happy, your employees don't want you to fire anybody. But then It's you hard have to fire someone during a pandemic. Right. And, but, you know, you, <laughs> you need to be able, good companies... Don't just keep everybody they ever hired and they make mistakes and people don't work out. And so this is an excuse to sort of say, who are the people that we want at the company? And that can be good, good for companies and ba- bad for yeah. individuals. So, so they're seeing who they want to be on companies. And then so they're saying, hey, I'm going to build an A team. I'm going to call the herd and maybe do a layoff where different maybe in the past, the strong companies are doing a layoff because they they feel like that they have a, a provision, position of strength, either via a strong balance sheet or market position. And then, you know, we're saying wait until maybe the second half of the year. Uh, and then you can be aggressive on the acquisition side because you're going to start to see, hmm. we're already starting to see a lot of companies have extra cash, right? Because it was so easy to, to raise. Some people raised twice last year, but maybe only are now getting the memo of, hey, unit economics work, and they're not going to be able to refactor their business in time to do another raise. Um, we're seeing a lot of distressed sales already, but there's going to be a lot more in the second half of the year. You think uh, sort of super teams, startups, like merge with each other to try, or you think it's more... I mean, the challenge with acquisitions has been the antitrust situation and that there are a couple dominant tech companies that can't buy. And I'm saying less like, you know, less of Google buying something for tens of billions of dollars. This is more this is, you know, a decacorn or, you know, a unicorn type startup who's able to pull in teams or able to pull in product functionality like, hey, we always like this team, but they said they wanted 150 times revenue, and now <laughs> now they're willing to take two times revenue. Right, and because they don't have a whole lot of, they're not ind- independently financeable, and those teams that which you know create a fortress balance sheet, 
build an A-plus quality team, and then go out and say, hey, it's going to be two times revenue. I know that's not what you expected, but you could join this team. We have all the capital we need. We have a great team that you could be a key player on. And when this thing all clears in two years, the IPO market opens, we're going to be a decided winner. Do you think also there's going to be a shift towards more salary-based comp rather than equity-based if we're in a market where it might take a couple of years for you know, shares to appreciate in a big way or there to be a strong kind of exit opportunity? You know, that's not what's happened in the past. You know, frankly, you know, in other downturns, you know, you've seen salaries that re- remain relatively flat, huh. but equity comp be go down just because, you know, equity ca- cash comp has gone up a lot. And if you, you see a renormalization in the in the labor market. Everyone's getting laid off. Employees have less, less bargaining less power, so they're going to get think, paid less. So, yeah. So I think people yeah. are going to say, I'm going to keep my same salary bands, which are up 30% from two years ago. And, you know, people are just going to make less money if they don't believe in the equity portion here. But if you join this super team that's going to go public, you have a better chance of making money as opposed to this company, which seems like you're going to run out of money. In I mean, months. Instacart resetting valuations. Do you think you'll see startups just try to artificially reset the valuation they give to employees? It depends. I mean, that's a very unique situation with a very high price and their whole comp set of, you know, is was down 75, 80%. So that was a very specific, hey, I'm close to IPO. Everyone in my comp sits down tremendously. It's going to be really hard to recruit, especially with a ton of preference ahead of me if people are bearish on the sector. Um, we haven't seen, we've seen that in the past that people have reset 409 valuations, especially if the company has raised a lot of money and has a lot of preference ahead of the employees. We haven't seen that. Investors yet. don't root for it. <laughs> Well, no, we, we, we generally do um, oh, because we think the team, you know, if the team is the most important thing at a startup and you think you're not going to be able to recruit a great team or you're going to lose people because they don't think their equity is going to be worth that much. You know, you, you'd rather, you'd rather keep your best, your best players and you'd rather recruit the best team. So, you know, most good investors were actually root for a low for on any price. Hmm. Actually, publicly, we want the most fair, third-party value for an NA price. But as a director, I'm, I'm looking for that price to be low so people get excited about the equity opportunity. What would you see if you could name a couple of companies as winners that, uh, out of this period? Companies that you think are slightly under the radar, but because of their capital structure or you know they're having a more sustainable business model could surprise people and end up looking very strong uh, in the next two years. Um, I, I, I still think that healthcare is is an industry that's going to change tremendously, mm. and I think you know companies that are coming at it um, and on a holistic approach, and they're going to be winners in the space. That can that there's a, they're in consolidators in the space are going to be really important. You know, one example is Roe or Roman Health that um, you know came out of the gate strong, grew very quickly has an excellent team. And even in the last year where you know there was less consolidation, they bought a handful of companies that filled product needs as they built out their full portfolio, both in terms of delivery ecosystems as well as end user products. And you know, I think that's a good kind of case study or an example of you have a big balance sheet, you're in a big market, you've gotten to millions of customers and now you're going to be able to use that balance sheet not only defensively but offensively to build a really big company that, that's for a the market reopens. Company, right? Yeah, so yeah. full disclosure, it's a portfolio yeah. company. Yeah. <laughs> they're a they're a male fertility company, right? 
they have they've male grown, and female that fertility. That is that is recession but, proof. That's what I say. There's a lot of reasons to suppose they're going to be. Yeah, great. health and and healthcare is is generally recession proof. You know, we also like we think the reopening is going to be real. We like the travel sector. You know, Airbnb was a former portfolio company that you know put up great numbers. Everything around travel as consumer shifts from you know people uh, traditionally seventy percent of consumer spending is on services. And that could be restaurants or travel or whatever it is. 30% is on hard goods or home. That shifted during the pandemic. And I think there's a lot of pent-up demand for that to shift back. So, you know, we believe in, you know, restaurants reopening, travel reopening, et cetera, et cetera. Nice. I like that. It's sort of like digital, you know, telemedicine, but also travel. So it's like seeing people remotely and also actually going and going to places. Yeah, I think there's going to be a mix. I think some of the IRL is obviously coming back, and that's great. And some of the, th- and, but I think we'll all still have Zoom accounts forever. Rick, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Awesome seeing everybody. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.